0: section ten of the english restoration and louis the fourteenth by osmond airy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter seven restoration of monarchy in england number one conditions of the restoration louis the fourteenth after the fever fit of the fronde had entered upon his sovereignty by the right of conquest unshackled by any constitutional authority and unbound by any conditions in england too monarchy was within a year after the peace of the pyrenees re-established amid all the signs of popular rejoicing and with greetings as apparently servile as those offered to louis himself and yet charles was bound hand and foot by conditions the failure to fulfil which would in all probability have relegated him once more to a wandering life among the courts of europe that this was so arose from the all-important fact that speaking roughly he was restored by those who had overthrown his father and who were responsible for his own exile the fleet the army the fortresses were in their hands england had it is true shaken off at length the military despotism by which cromwell had cut right athwart the most cherished traditions of english life like an unstrung bow she had fallen back upon her old ways of life she had restored her parliament and then parliament and monarchy being coordinated in the english mind she had restored her king this government was as natural to them as their food or raiment and naked indians dressing themselves in french fashion were no more absurd than englishmen without a parliament and a king but having thrown off first the despotism of charles i and then the despotism of military force the country had no thought of taking another the new reign must take account of the feelings which had grown up during the overthrow and abeyance of monarchy. That Charles fully recognized the position was seen in his own words some months later to the House of Lords when he spoke of those who brought or permitted us to come here. The people might, it was hoped in their impatience, be deceived by the professions made, but made they must be the declaration of breda was admirably suited to the object in view by the most careful expression of deference to the authority of the parliament charles trusted to lull suspicion until he was steady enough upon the throne to use his constitutional power of dissolution at a favourable moment and thus to secure a parliament more to his wishes the foremost question in men's minds Was how far the spirit of retaliation was likely to go. Had the Restoration, instead of being the re establishment of parliamentary government, been the work of a victorious royalist movement, the passions roused would have been quenched, the accumulated injuries of years avenged in torrents of blood. But the Declaration granted a general pardon to all who within forty days after its publication should by any open act return to loyalty and obedience accepting only such persons as shall hereafter be accepted by parliament the king's word was indeed solemnly passed for an absolute oblivion of all acts committed against him or his father in the letter to the speaker accompanying the declaration however a significant hint was given if there be a crying sin for which the nation may be involved in the infamy that attends it we cannot doubt that you will be as solicitous to redeem and vindicate the nation from that guilt and infamy as we can be the question of the church was treated under the same conditions the presbyterians were looking forward with eager anxiety the anglican churchmen with exultant hope to quiet the one but in terms which might afterwards leave the field clear to the other charles proclaimed on his own account a complete liberty to tender consciences declaring himself ready to consent to such an act of parliament as upon mature deliberation shall be offered to us for the full granting that indulgence the resettlement of the land was next dealt with during the wars many estates had changed hands the crown lands and those of church dignitaries had been confiscated by the commonwealth and sold. About them, nothing was said in the Declaration. As to private estates, either granted away by the Commonwealth or sold by distressed Royalists, the decision was left absolutely in the hands of Parliament. In another matter, the Declaration expressed how completely the Restoration was one of sufferance it concluded with a promise to consent to any act of parliament for the full satisfaction of all arrears due to the officers and soldiers of the army under the command of general monk and to receive them into the royal service upon as good pay and conditions as they now enjoy the recognition of the absolute authority of parliament in questions regarding the church and the land the complete waiving of a desire for personal vengeance the satisfaction of monk's army these were the conditions under which charles was allowed to return to england the composition of the executive government expressed the nature of the compromise the privy council was really nominated by monk and was composed in a great degree of leading presbyterians Out of this, however, was formed a small committee which practically had the whole control of affairs. Edward Hyde, now Earl of Clarendon, was Lord Chancellor and was so supreme that the years from 1660 to 1667 are fitly named the Clarendon Administration. With him was Ormond who projected into this reign the high-toned virtues of the old cavalier stock. Southampton, the Lord Treasurer, and Nicholas the Secretary, these four represented the principle of legitimacy in its purest form. On the other hand, Monk and his confidant Morris were included, while Lord Robarts, who had fought against the king, was made viceroy of Ireland. Scotland was placed under Middleton, a rude soldier of fortune who had served on both sides. Number two, partial fulfilment of the declaration of Breda the indemnity bill was taken up at once charles and clarendon were determined that in this respect the declaration should be carried out as loyally as the prevailing temper might allow and they managed at least to confine the spirit of retaliation within intelligible lines a broad distinction was drawn between the regicides those namely who had committed the crying sin and all others about the former the majority of the house of commons had little hesitation the true presbyterian abhorred the crime of the king's death as much as the royalist they began on june fifth by accepting from the benefits of the act five of the judges for life and estate on the eighth three more were added and the next day twenty more for pains and penalties not extending to life It was not until July 11th, and then only in consequence of an urgent message from Charles, that with some further additions the bill passed the lower house. In the Lords a far more savage spirit reigned. The Earl of Bristol was the spokesman of the majority when he complained that the bill was miserably inadequate, though he thought that delay was even a worse evil than an incomplete revenge. On July 20th the Lords resolved that all who had signed the warrant should die, and three days later they included all who were concerned in the murder. Once more Charles intervened, but for his promise he told the Lords plainly neither he nor they would have been there. His own honor and the public security alike demanded an indemnity for all except those immediately guilty of his father's death with amendments which the commons would not accept the bill passed the lords on august tenth in the conferences between the houses the feeling of the lords was expressed in a demand for the death of four members of cromwell's high court of justice in revenge for the death of four of their own number condemned by that court the victims to be chosen by the relatives of the slain peers the commons however refused to entertain the proposal hoping in full accord with Charles and Clarendon that their lordships would not have the sacrifice of the king's blood to be mingled with any other blood. At length, on August 29th, the bill passed. Besides the exceptions already mentioned, Hacker and Axtell, who were not among the king's judges, were accepted for life, while in the case of Vane and Lambert, though they as men of mischievous power and activity were accepted it was understood that a pardon should be granted them and it was further determined that those who had given themselves up should be tried but if convicted should not be executed without a special act of parliament the trial which followed is famous because orlando bridgman interpreting the events of the last thirty years then established the present view of monarchical immunity and ministerial responsibility the king's person, he laid down, is inviolable; he is directly subject to God alone, and no authority whatever can exercise coercive power over him. The full responsibility of ministers was affirmed with equal emphasis, with the exceptions mentioned. Every act committed against the state between June first, sixteen thirty-seven, and June twenty-fourth, sixteen sixty, was forgotten, at the price of some twenty lives the universal fear was removed it should not be forgotten that it was principally owing to charles and clarendon that after a civil war which had its roots in the deepest feelings which can stir men's minds after a despotism which triumphant as it placed england among european nations had roused the bitterest resentment the restoration of the old order was accomplished with bloodshed which, when compared with the provocations which seemed to call for vengeance, was well-nigh insignificant. Life was now safe. It remained to give the same security to property. With regard to the crown lands, those of the church dignitaries, and in a few cases those of private owners who had been forcibly dispossessed, no action was taken either by the court or the parliament until the dissolution they then in the natural course of law since their confiscation had been illegal reverted to their original owners the question of private estates however was a different one those royalists who had voluntarily sold their lands looked eagerly forward to regaining them but here to their indignant disappointment Clarendon stood firm in his assertion of the sanctity of private contract, and the Bill of Sales decreed the confirmation of all transfers made with the owner's consent. Probably to no act of his administration did Clarendon owe more odium, as for none did he deserve more credit than to his integrity in this affair. Another matter of the first importance for the stability of the restored government was then taken in hand both charles and the commons were eager for the disbanding of the army to the king principally composed as it was of the soldiers who had served cromwell and whose acquiescence in charles return was largely mixed with sullen jealousy it formed a standing menace in the presence of such a force the monarchy could not breathe freely but charles had another reason little guessed at the time it is now known that he had formed the deliberate intention of dissolving Parliament as soon as the troops were disbanded, wresting all the power from the Presbyterians, and with the help of foreign money, raising an army for himself independent of any other authority. His people were as eager for the disbanding as he was. The cost of maintenance alone, £70,000 a month, was no light burden. But of all the feelings roused by Cromwell's rule, hatred of his military despotism was the deepest. It finds eloquent expression throughout the reign and has entered the statute book in the mutiny and riot acts. In the debate on August 30th, William Morris aptly expressed the general feeling when he said that as long as the soldiery continued there would be a perpetual trembling in the nation they were inconsistent with the happiness of any kingdom the keeping of the army on foot was like a sheep's skin and a wolf's skin which if they lie together the former loses its wool the nation he said could not appear like itself whilst the sword is over them monk willingly cooperated in the step, though it at once robbed him of his extraordinary position his utmost wishes were satisfied the rude soldier of fortune had fallen upon times which gave ample scope for his peculiar genius he had played the game with incomparable dexterity and had won the stakes he had been made gentleman of the bedchamber knight of the garter master of the horse commander-in-chief and duke of albemarle with a pension of seven thousand pounds a year and he had nothing more to desire in england fourteen regiments of horse and eighteen of foot in scotland one of horse and four of foot were disbanded charles however took advantage of the sudden rising of a few fanatics in the streets of london to retain the Coldstream guards and a regiment of horse with one of the regiments which formed the garrison of dunkirk in all about five thousand men one instance of the growth of modern constitutional ideas was the doctrine of ministerial responsibility laid down by Bridgman. Another was the adoption of the principle that the whole nation should pay to get rid of an abuse, even when a single class is benefited by its abolition. In settling the royal revenue, the feudal tenures which pressed solely upon the landed interest with the court of wards were swept away, And the money was raised instead from the excise, which, having been raised originally by the long parliament to defray the expenses of the war against the king, was now perpetuated. It is no wonder that vehement debates took place upon the proposal, and that while political economists like Ashley Cooper and Maynard were supporters of the change, it was opposed both by crotcheteers like Prynne and by statesmen like Annesley. There remained but one question but that a question of supreme importance the settlement of church government the restoration had been the joint work of episcopalian and presbyterian would it be possible to reconcile them on this question too the presbyterian indeed was willing enough for a compromise for he had an uneasy feeling that the ground was slipping from beneath his feet of charles's intentions he was still in doubt but he knew that clarendon was the sworn friend of the church. The churchman, on the other hand, was eagerly expecting the approaching hour of triumph. It soon appeared that as king and parliament, so king and church were inseparable in the English mind, that indeed the return of the king was the restoration of the church even more than it was the restoration of parliament in the face of the present presbyterian majority however it was necessary to temporize the former incumbents of church livings were restored and the commons took the communion according to the rites of the church but in other respects the presbyterians were carefully kept in play charles taking his part in the elaborate farce by appointing ten of their leading ministers royal chaplains and even attending their sermons The state of things was faithfully reflected in Parliament. As early as July 9th, words had been used which concisely expressed the determination of the Church. There was, said Heneage Finch, the Solicitor-General, no question as to her religion, and for the rest he knew of no law for altering the government of the Church by bishops. In any case he hoped they would not cant after Cromwell it was not to be expected that a Presbyterian majority should tamely fall in with this ignoring of past years. After prolonged debate and amid a scene of unusual disorder, the question was shelved by a resolution desiring Charles to select a number of divines to debate the whole matter. He willingly undertook the task, but was soon undeceived regarding the likelihood of a compromise. A barren discussion was begun in writing between the Anglican and Presbyterian divines. We agree with you in the main, said the Presbyterians, but we wish certain minor matters altered. If you agree with us in essentials, the Anglicans replied, it is mere scruple-mongering to dispute about trifles. Charles now took the matter more completely into his own hands by issuing a declaration. Refusing on the ground of constraint, to admit the validity of the oaths imposed upon him in scotland by which he was bound to uphold the covenant and not concealing his preference for the anglican church as the best fence god hath yet raised against popery in the world he asserted that nevertheless to his own knowledge the presbyterians were not enemies to episcopacy or a set liturgy and were opposed to the alienation of church revenues The declaration then went on to limit the power of bishops and archdeacons to a degree sufficient to satisfy many of the leading Presbyterians, one of whom, Reynolds, accepted a bishopric. Charles then proposed to choose an equal number of learned divines of both persuasions to discuss alterations in the liturgy. Meanwhile, no one was to be troubled regarding differences of practice the majority in the commons at first welcomed the declaration the scheme was indeed wide enough to take in all but an insignificant fraction of the presbyterians and a bill was accordingly introduced by sir matthew hale to turn the declaration into a law but clarendon at any rate had no intention of thus bulking the church of her revenge anticipating hale's action he had in the interval been busy in securing a majority against any compromise. The Declaration had done its work in gaining time, and when the bill was brought in it was rejected by 183 to 157 votes. Parliament was at once, December twenty-fourth, dissolved. The way was now open for the riot of the Anglican triumph. Even before the new House met, the mask was thrown off by the issuing of an order to the justices to restore the full liturgy. The conference indeed took place in the Savoy Palace. It failed like the Hampton Court Conference of James I, because it was intended to fail. Upon the two important points, the authority of bishops and the liturgy, the Anglicans would not give way an inch. Both parties informed the King that, anxious as they were for agreement, they saw no chance of it. This last attempt at union having fallen through, the government had their hands free, and their intentions were speedily made plain. End of section ten.